0: and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. We got a big response last week from our episode, the first episode on the Bear Brook murders. This was a case that I did know about I didn't really know about the second barrel being found in the year 2000 though and that takes this case in a different route you know and there's so much about this case i didn't know until i started researching it absolutely crazy so it just seems like in the 80s right and it's not that long ago i grew up in the 80s you know and you could just leave one state and go to another and start a new life it was like almost like wild west days At least it was for this guy, Bob Evans. This guy had several aliases, and he was arrested under several of them, and he served time under a wrong identification, and nothing ever pops up. Like I said during the previous episode, I get a speeding ticket and don't pay the ticket, and I've got the SWAT team on my ass, and this guy commits homicides and goes across the country and gets another job as an electrician. That's another thing in terms of identity. This guy goes from state to state saying he's an electrician. I know, guys, in the, in the trades, you've got to present your electrician's card. You know, it's a state license. How does he work as an electrician? How do you work without presenting your license at a construction site? This guy was at a big plant when he was going under the name Bob Evans in New Hampshire, a plant in Manchester, New Hampshire. And this guy, does he even have to fill out an application? anything. And he was qualified to do the job. That's kind of the crazy thing. This guy is murdering people all over the place and is able to keep the rest of his life somewhat straight. He's always seemed to be working. And I don't know. I look at some pictures of him later in life. There's some telltale signs of alcoholism in his face, but I don't know. I don't know what this guy's deal was. All right, guys. So this episode will be part two of the Bear Brook homicides. And I'm going to give you a little bit more information on Bob Evans, also known as Larry Vanner, Mockerman. But this guy's real name was Terry Peter Rasmussen, and he was known as the Chameleon Killer. And man, what a story this is. Absolutely insane. All right, so I told you a little bit about the victim's located in Allenstown, New Hampshire. I gave you their identities. There's four victims, guys, in two barrels. The first barrel was found in 1985, and it contained a mother and daughter. The mother was later found to be Marylise Honeychurch, and the daughter was Marie Vaughn. That was in the first barrel, a oil drum, 55-gallon oil drum. I know you've seen them, gas stations. And in 2000, after this case had been dead cold, a new cold case detective with the New Hampshire State Police goes back to the site, and there's more junk in this forest than I originally thought, and I'll get to that later. But there's other barrels there, guys. And they expand their search, and they open another barrel, and there's two more kids in there, one containing... Sarah McWaters, also a daughter of Merrilies Honeychurch, and an unidentified child aged two to four. Sarah McWaters was attributed to Merrilies Honeychurch, but not the same father as seven year old Marie Vaughn, who was entombed with her in her barrel. So the only person we haven't identified is this young girl aged two to four. This young girl did come back after a DNA check as being the child of Terry Peter Rasmussen. He was the father, but Merrilees Honeychurch wasn't the mother. So we don't know who mom was at this point. So that's at least four victims that Rasmussen is suspected credibly in these four homicides. He ends up going to prison for another homicide. That's five homicides that are in his orbit. Also, Denise Bowden of Manchester, New Hampshire had left New Hampshire with Rasmussen. And at that point, it appears Rasmussen went to California because a short time later, he had dropped off Denise Bowden's daughter at an RV park he was working at. And it's strange, right? Because... He's got no problem killing people. I don't know why that didn't happen to this little girl. But Denise Bowden's never been seen again, guys. So that's six possible homicides attributed to this guy. And it's just crazy. I don't know how that other little girl at the camper park got away from him. He must have cared about her. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with this guy. It would be a remarkable story if you could get his side of it. Why did he do all this? But would you get the truth from such an evil person? Probably not. And would it be what you'd expect anyways? I think what happened in New Hampshire, guys, is he had all those mouths to feed, and he was tired of trying to feed them. And that was the end of the line. This case is also strange in another way. We knew who the perpetrator was before we knew who the victims were. Imagine that. It's kind of a strange set of case facts, right? But all right, in this episode, we're going to cover a remarkable librarian who helped with identification in this case. And also, I'm going to give you some more background on Rasmussen and what he did before and after the murders in New Hampshire. And you're just not going to believe it. You're going to end this podcast shaking your head. And it's kind of a strange case where it doesn't really have the traction of, say, a Lacey Peterson case or the O.J. Simpson case or, you know, Robert Blake, whatever you want to say comes after it. But I think the problem with it is it spans such a wide geography and so many years. But man, there's a lot of twists and turns in this. And I'm going to tell you about them in this episode. I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about the librarian who identified the victims in this case. She identified them in 2018. And this is kind of a reoccurring pattern in this case. Rasmussen was not identified by police sources, he was identified through DNA through a different means. And I'll get to that how that happened, but the police didn't identify Rasmussen. They didn't identify these victims either, guys. This was another private party. This was this librarian, Rebecca Heath. She was 34 years old at the time. And like a lot of this case, guys, there's a story within a story. And I'll tell you a little bit about Rebecca Heath. She was a librarian, as I said. But she had a difficult upbringing, guys. She was raised in a cult, that didn't even allow the members to name their children. She says it's kind of like the Mennonites or the Amish, but obviously with more of a harsh tone. She escaped that cult at 19 and basically landed in the world not knowing anything about the world, really. So she had some difficulties with that. But she developed a hobby as a librarian, trying to find missing girls. She said, that very well could have been me when she gets into these missing persons cases. She felt like those people or people in general could have taken advantage of her specifically. And she would have went with them, she believes, you know, that she was so gullible that she could have been harmed by them. So she had an affinity with these missing girls. And she became like an expert in tracking down relatives, timelines and all that it's absolutely astounding the work that rebecca heath has done in this case and i hope she's been rewarded and i've seen she's gotten some accolades and all this but she was one of the reasons i think she is the reason that these victims in the drums were identified at all don't forget in 2016 we had identified rasmussen but again that didn't come from the police either and that's a recurring theme here. And one of the things I wanted to mention, during the search, right, they discovered those two barrels in 85. And it's Merilee's Honeychurch and her daughter in the first barrel. That's bad enough. But a cold case detective goes back and wants to re-examine the scene in 2000, and they find that other barrel with two other people. One, the daughter of Rasmussen, and also... The other girl was also Honeychurch's daughter, but we don't know the father of that girl. So what I'm getting at here is the second oil drum, guys, was less than 100 yards from the first, and it's starting to bother me. It's starting to bubble up this incompetence from the police. I'm sorry. I know it was a long time ago, but holy cow, holy cow. There's a crime scene with two people stuck in these barrels. And from the pictures I've seen and a description of that crime scene is there were several barrels and they only opened that one. And the reason they opened it was already open. The hunter who found that, him and his brother were hunting and they see a leg bone sticking out of the top of the oil drum. I just can't fathom that they don't go in there and... See these other oil drums less than 100 yards away. There was a lot of debris in there. But, my God. And now people are saying that the second oil drum, maybe it was dropped off after that. I don't buy it. I just don't buy that. I think those two oil drums, the victims were brought to the oil drums and put in there at the same time. It just wouldn't make sense really any other way. And the police dropped the ball. And that's what happened. Sorry. All right. Let me get back to the librarian, Rebecca Heath. So Rebecca was listening to a podcast in 2017. And this was a true crime podcast. It was not Boston Confidential. We were not active at that time. I wish it was. But she was listening to a true crime podcast. And I don't know which one it was. And it had something to do with a cold case Homicide where detectives were now conducting isotope DNA tests. When you submit your DNA, they can now do these isotope tests. And they had done that in one of our cases that we covered. And that was the Bella Bond case, guys, where the baby was killed and set out to drift in the Boston Harbor. And after the body was recovered, they did DNA. And now there's relatively new isotope testing. And... It showed that she had spent the majority of her life in the New England region. And the way they do that, guys, it's interesting. I don't really get it. I'm not a scientist, but what you've eaten, what you've ingested, like there was certain elements of pine in this girl's system, and it places her in Massachusetts. It's just incredible what they can do with that. And they did this in the Bear Brook murders case, right? And... That kind of let Rebecca Heath, it kind of narrowed her search a little bit. And this Rebecca Heath had a pretty extraordinary thought process on this. She says, my starting point was not who are these people. It was how do I find the people that are looking for them? She says, I try to put myself in the place of the victim's family using a scenario that they were not assuming the worst had happened but had just lost touch over the years and wanted to check back in. Where do you go to trace relatives of people who they think are still missing, basically? And she did that through the Ancestry.com 23andMe. I didn't know this, that they have boards, messaging boards, so people can post information on missing persons and she had went over this rebecca heath had went over this before and had actually remembered a post from 1999 guys and she had actually kept it so she's got to go through her own filing system to find this the woman is absolutely remarkable so she goes back to her own archives and found what she was looking for on ancestry.com in 1999 there was a woman who was looking for her husband's half-sister who had disappeared with a female toddler. And everything else seemed to be a fit, you know, location, all this with the isotopes. And it's just remarkable. So what Rebecca Heath does at that point is she tries to contact them, I guess, through Ancestry.com's bulletin board, And she couldn't get through that way. So she starts to look at addresses. The addresses that had been provided, that was from 1999. So people were long gone out of there. But what she had done, guys, is reach out on social media. And the first person she reached out to on this got back within minutes. And they get to corresponding over it. And this person who was looking for her husband's half-sister states, yeah, she had left California with a man by the last name of Rasmussen. Oh, my God, right? So Rebecca Heath just kind of loses it right there. She knew she had it because Rasmussen had been identified as the killer in 2016, also through a non-police source, guys. But... Man, what a home run. She said it was kind of like a moment where, you know, you see in the movies where it just you focus and the world kind of shifts onto you because there's been such a big shift change here, right? Like, oh my God, she knew at that point that she had it. At that point, she goes to the police and tells them what she did. And she was absolutely correct. It took months and months, though, to get the DNA together for this case. So the name of that person ended up being Miss Honeychurch and her daughter, Sarah McWaters, And Sarah was the youngest of this group at 11 months. So you have Maryleese Honeychurch, the mom, in one oil drum with Marie Vaughn. And in the other drum, you had mcwaters and this other unidentified child man it's just it's a heavy case right but at least now we know thanks to rebecca heath who these people were i'm sorry the world owes a debt of gratitude to rebecca heath but one of the questions that occurs to me during this is why aren't the police investigating like this I know this took hours and hours. I don't know if the police had or would have the time to put into that. But you could, you know, I don't want to see hire out, out like contract out for her murder investigation. But that woman's an expert. She should be teaching that at the police academies, no? I always feel like the police and most municipal departments, I guess, simply don't use the technology that we have among us, and I don't know why that is, especially for cold case homicides like this. And I gotta wonder out loud how the police treated Rebecca Heath. A lot of times, cops can be dismissive of people who didn't go through an 18-week police academy or something like that, and it's just so narrow a vision. I hope they treated her well. I've heard of other people, private investigators and clinicians working with the police that really don't get treated so well. I hope that didn't happen in Rebecca's case. One of the things that sticks out for me about Miss Heath is she did this for free. For free, guys. All right. Let me move on to the terrible tale of Terry Rasmussen, Bob Evans, Larry Vanner, Jerry Markerman, Curtis Kimball, tell you a little bit about this guy. It's hard to believe this is one person, right? but it is. A tale of woe with this guy begins in 1943 when Terry Peter Rasmussen was born in Colorado. He seemed to have a relatively normal upbringing, he was married in 1968. He ended up having four kids and lived first in Arizona and later in California. Things weren't good in the Rasmussen household, though. In 1975, the wife left him, but at this point, they had four kids. He was arrested for aggravated assault, and I'm not sure if it was on the wife or whoever the victim was here, but it seems like the wife smartened up and skedaddled with the kids good move there without knowing more about the case i would have to assume it is assumption so bear with me it was probably a domestic violence case but to get that aggravated assault charge in california you have to do something pretty dastardly so he may have slapped her around pretty good but i'm not sure his son eric stated that during his time This kid, Eric, went on to a pretty good life. He was pretty successful. He was in the armed services, but he said as a young kid, his dad would burn him with cigarettes. Imagine that. And he had this dead man look in his eyes. like They used to call it the thousand yard stare. And this guy had it. He had a daughter, Andrea, who stated that there was mental illness within the family and various addictions at that time. The wife left, and I don't think Rasmussen ever had any contact with them again. Best thing that ever could have happened to that family. So that brings us up to about 1978 in California, guys. Merrilyse Honeychurch ends up somehow hooked up with this guy, Terry Rasmussen. And she, at that point, had two children of her own, Sarah McWaters, which we have already discussed, 11 months, and Marie Vaughn age seven, eight. So Rasmussen is going to the Honeychurch household for Thanksgiving dinner in 1978. So they have a big blowout on Thanksgiving Day. I hope they got to eat dinner first, but I'm not sure. So they have a big fight, and Merrily's Honeychurch leaves with the rest of the crew. And I've never heard exactly what they were fighting about But if Merrilyse Honeychurch's mom was anything like mine, the mom probably put it on and says, you have an 11-month-old and a 7-month-old, and you need to take care of these kids instead of getting involved with this lunatic. Mom was probably trying to tell her to focus on her children and get settled, and it blew up. They had a fight, and that's the last time Merrilyse Honeychurch was seen in California. They left on Thanksgiving Day, 1978, and drove to New Hampshire. And I just wanted to point out some excellent research in this case. There's an article on Radar Online called Catching the Chameleon, Four Bodies in Barrels, a Mystery Kidnap Victim, a Serial Killer with Three Multiple Identities, and Three Decades of Questions. That's on Radar Online, and I'll put that in our show notes but it's a pretty comprehensive timeline actually the best one i've seen yet that's why i mentioned it but let me get back to 1978. so it seems guys 1978 must take a few days to drive from california to new hampshire but somehow some way this crew including merrilies honeychurch sarah mcwaters marie vaughn and Terry Peter Rasmussen end up in Allenstown, New Hampshire. And he ends up working at a general store right on the cusp of the Allenstown forest. And this is where they ended up finding the oil drums guys filled with Marilee's Honey Honeychurch and the kids. He worked there as an electrician, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. It was kind of a large store. They called it a general store, but it seemed to serve the whole area. The previous owner of the store finally confessed that he had hired this guy, Bob Evans, and he did mention seeing Honey Honeychurch. So it's kind of strange. By the time they get to Allenstown, New Hampshire, Honey Honeychurch is going by the name Elizabeth, and now Rasmussen is Bob Evans. Kind of makes me question a little bit of Marilee's Honey Church's past. What was going on? Why did he have to change your name? Why would he even have to think of changing your name? I guess the guy sitting in the driver's seat of the car changes his name. So there's just something off there. And one of the things that's off is that other kid in the barrel, right, that is unidentified, where Rasmussen is the biological father there. That's a lot of question marks there. But let's move on. So the last time Erelease Honeychurch and the kids could be accounted for appeared to be May 1980. So all those people would have to have passed away after May or in May 1980 forward. Because in 1981... It was apparent that Terry Rasmussen had met and was dating Denise Bowden, who was 23 years old. And she had a six month old child, usually on her hip, and her name was Dawn. So this is strange, guys. By 1981, he's dating Denise Bowden. But come Thanksgiving of that year, November 26, 1981. Denise Bowden and her new boyfriend, Bob Evans, go over to her her family's house in Manchester and have Thanksgiving dinner. And so they knew, the parents knew that the couple was having financial problems and all that, but they fled New Hampshire that day, like just after Thanksgiving. Same thing with Merrilee's Honeychurch, Thanksgiving. Is Thanksgiving a trigger for this guy? I don't know, but it seems like Thanksgiving 1981, so November 26th, 81, is the last time Denise Bowden can be accounted for, because Rasmussen shows up in California, and the Bowden family knew that Denise was leaving with Bob Evans and baby Dawn, right? And they don't hear from her again, ever, and there's no checking up on them. It's absolutely insane. So Rasmussen resurfaces in California, and I think he went there directly from Allenstown, New Hampshire, but he comes on the radar again as Curtis Kimball with a kid by the name of Lisa, which would later turn out to be Don Bowden. Denise, I don't think ever made it to California, and if she did, she didn't last long when she got there. He had been working at an RV park in California, and he ends up getting pinched for drunk driving under that alias Curtis Kimball, which he had used before. But he was doing, like, maintenance and electrician work around the RV park. So he gets pinched on that, and I think he gets nervous that he's going to get caught for all this stuff he had done before. So he leaves Don Bowden, the baby, and whom he renamed Lisa at this RV park, and he hightails it out of there. So that kid is probably the luckiest kid in the world, and she was later adopted within just a few years. So Rasmussen's on the run till about 87, and he gets arrested again. I know, big shock. He's driving a stolen vehicle, gets pinched for that, and his fingerprints lead him back to abandoning Dawn at the RV park. So now he's in custody, and the police don't really know what to do with him. They end up charging him with the stolen car and the child abandonment. And I think he ends up taking a plea deal. He was originally sentenced to three years, but he gets paroled after one. And once he's paroled, nobody sees him again. He hightails it out of there. This guy seems to be an expert in covering his tracks and he doesn't draw a lot of attention to himself. He'll get all these, you know, handyman jobs where he's probably getting paid in cash, probably day jobs as an electrician and he gets paid under the table in cash, you know. But over the next decade, he's kind of off the grid. But in 1999, he resurfaces under a new alias, Larry Vanner. And he is dating another woman. I know I'm going to butcher this name, Yunsun June. Its first name is E-U-N-S-O-N, last name June J-U-N. She was 42. She was a chemist, highly educated, and he's under a new alias, Larry Vanner. So that's about ninety-eight, ninety-nine, and he seems to be going to work every day, and it seems to be a regular life. But then, Unsan San Jun goes missing, okay? And now the police are stepping it up, and they take Rasmussen's fingerprints. He's under the name Vanner, but the fingerprints tie him back to the name Curtis Kimball. And if they had just straightened out the fingerprints on this, I think... What happens next would have been stopped, but he ends up killing Unsan Jun, and living with the body for days, putting cat litter over it. Just a complete monster, this guy. So Unsan disappeared in 2001, and now they do tie him back to Kimball, and they should really know who he is at this point, but I don't know if they give a crap. It's just the strangest thing. Such lackadaisical policing here. But he killed Unsan, and I think it was pretty brutal. And he ends up taking a plea. The cops search the house, find the body, whole nine yards. He takes a plea pretty quickly. He takes 15 years to life, guys. So conceivably, he could have ended up doing five, six years and then being paroled. And that was in 2003. So detectives do try to tie the little girl that he abandoned, Lisa, whom was actually Dawn Bowden, right? They go ahead and do a DNA search and it comes back that Rasmussen has no paternal relationship to Lisa. And he had been introducing her as the daughter and she'd call him dad and all this other stuff. So everybody's just perplexed on it. And Rasmussen, for his part won't say who she is, who's mom. The reason is he, he killed mom, I think, right? So that takes us up to 2003, and he's serving time in the joint in the California prison system. And by 2010, he develops lung cancer and dies relatively quickly. He's never faced justice for all the murders he took, but I don't think you actually beat that case because you're going to have to answer to a higher authority. And I think Mr. Rasmussen has or is answering to that authority. Well, guys, there is that one little girl who is still unidentified in this case, and that's an absolute tragedy. She was Rasmussen's daughter. Nobody seems to know who Mom was. Did she meet the same fate as Denise Bowden? I think we could speculate yes on that. They believe Denise, when they left New Hampshire, she was killed somewhere between Texas and New Hampshire because I think Texas was their first stop before going into California, and they may have been observed there. But I don't know. She could be anywhere. Dawn Bowden, the little girl who Rasmussen changed her first name to Lisa, doesn't know what happened to her mother. She was way too young. And again, Dawn is probably one of the luckiest kids alive. I don't know why she was spared. Maybe it would have brought more heat on to him. I don't think he had any connection to life or any light behind his eyes. I think he was thinking in self-interest only, If he killed Don Bowden at that RV park where he was working, man, it goes right to him. All fingers go to him. But he drops her off and takes off, and everybody thinks it's because that OUI pinch. So they're not looking for him as hard as they would for a homicide, you know what I mean? So I think Rasmussen exploited gaps in the criminal justice system by just moving about and changing his name. And it's strange what level of success he had in doing that. It's just crazy. And all these people, six people gone, probably more, guys. He had about a decade where nobody can really ascertain where he was or what he was doing. Do you think he stopped this crazy game he was playing? Man, it's just nuts. But I think that's all I have for you. Check out that article on Radar Online. I'll put it in the show notes. So much good investigative work. Unfortunately, none of it was done by the police, and the police should read this Radar Online article and be ashamed of themselves, quite frankly. They should go to classes held by these civilian investigators because at least they name the victims, and they also name Rasmussen as well. But check out that article, a lot of information in it. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. Get on to the next one for you. If you need me in the meantime, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. Otherwise, I'll get on to the next one for you, and I'll see you on the flip side. All right.